I think it'd be remarkable if you turned out more like me uh, when you were older. I already want to be more like James Stinson, uh, who is um, just wiser, braver, more Australian than I could ever be. So uh, thank you so much, James. Thank you all so much. This is, um, yeah, this is my last talk for here for a little while, I hope. I hope I'll be able to come and speak here again. And I wanted to talk a bit about uh, some of the things I feel is on my heart for us, us as a church, which is really this, when you're a Christian, to be a Christian uh, means to be loved. Uh, you are loved more than you realize. Uh, you are loved by God. More than that, you are saved. God has rescued you from sin, from darkness, from death, from the enemy. You are saved. But you are also sent. You are loved, you are saved, you are sent. Each of you, each of us has a purpose. Each of us has a call on our lives from God. And yet that can easily be lost. And so what I want to read is a passage in at the end of Matthew's Gospel, Matthew chapter 28, where God uh, where Jesus speaks to, uh, after the resurrection, he speaks to the 11 disciples. And so it says this, Matthew chapter 28 and verse 16. Then the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And then Jesus came to them and said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. God has a purpose for each of our lives. But this purpose doesn't tend to emerge in times of stability, and, secure, and security and ease. Actually, the purpose for our lives tends to emerge from chaos and difficulty and pain and when things are falling apart around us. So for the disciples in this passage, this has not been an easy time for them. Their leader, Jesus, has been arrested and then he's been publicly humiliated and tortured in front of them, a hugely traumatic experience they've just been through. On top of that, they have messed up as a group. Between them, as the 12 disciples, they've managed to betray him, abandon him, and deny him. So there's a sense of shame and regret. Then on top of that, there's this kind of confusion, because Jesus has been raised to new life, but they don't understand why this has happened or what's going on, and they're confused and obviously still doubting. A whole range of emotions. And now they are facing some huge and unwanted change, which is Jesus is about to leave them. And yet in the midst of that, in the midst of unwanted change, uncertainty, doubt, fear, confusion, trauma, sense of shame, guilt, and Jesus speaks to them and says, go, go and make disciples of all nations. He gives them a purpose. And when we go through difficult times in life, I think there are three, uh, three, uh, three common responses. And uh, these are three key dangers in the Christian life, I think. One is we get stuck. 
when things are falling apart around us, when we've made mistakes, when there's uncertainty, fear, we, we dig in and refuse to move. We get stuck. And then the next danger is we can shrink. Our, our vision shrinks. Our faith shrinks. Our passion shrinks. Our compassion for others shrink. And then the third danger is we become shallow. Jesus becomes just less important in our lives. And we find that, again, there's been our, our spiritual life, our faith, our prayer life, everything becomes more shallow. And yet, Jesus says, do not fall into any of these temptations, but go, go and make disciples of all nations and teach them everything. And first of all, go. And the command of Jesus is to go, to, to move. Again, it's so easy to get um, stuck, to uh, become more cautious over time. But this is not who we are as a church. This church started in its present form when Sam and Archie moved down from Holy Trinity Brompton in London 13 years ago with their four young children. And they were doing something which hadn't been done before. HTB had planted within London, but they never planted outside of London. So this was a huge risk. There were all kinds of uh, actually literal dangers associated with coming into this building. And yet they established this principle that we go, we take risks. And it's got into the DNA of us as a church, that we are a church that goes. And therefore we've planted within Brighton uh, to Whitehawk and to Five Ways and to, and to Hove. We've planted outside to Brighton, to Hastings and to Crawley and to Bognor and Portsmouth. And we've sent and we've looked wider to Syria and to Jordan and now to Rio de Janeiro. But we are a people who go. And yet, over time, you can lose that sense of being a people who go. You can become more cautious, more settled, and take fewer risks. When we first moved down to Brighton 13 years ago, it was so exciting living by the sea. And I thought, I'm going to swim in the sea almost every day. So I used to run down to the beach, and we arrived in the summer, I'd run down and swim. And I lasted until about November, then it started getting a bit cold and then started up again in April. I thought, that's great. I'll, do, I'll swim regularly April to November, which is what I did in my first year. Second year, it was more like May to October. Uh, then the next year, it was kind of late May to the beginning of October. Then the next year, it was, it was definitely June until September. Now, 13 years on, there's only really one week at the end of August when I'm prepared to go in the, in the, the sea. I've just got more cautious over time. And there are lots of very good reasons for that. Actually, one of the extraordinary things about this story is, so Jesus commanded these 11 disciples to go and make disciples of all nations. It's his parting words to them. It's very clear, quite easy to remember. And then at Pentecost, just shortly after this, the Spirit comes and fills them with the Holy Spirit. And the first thing the Holy Spirit does is he gives them the gift of tongues, which enables them to communicate with people of other languages. So the first thing the Holy Spirit gives them is the ability to do cross-cultural mission. And yet, at the end of Acts, which is roughly 30 years after the Great Commission, do you know where all the disciples are? They're still in Jerusalem. They haven't moved. 
They've outsourced the going to all nations, to other people. Paul, Silas, Luke, John Mark, Apollos. Those people, other people can go and do the adventures. But for some reason, they've got stuck and they stay in Jerusalem. And it's probably actually the thing that gets them going was probably the fall of Jerusalem when the Romans invaded. There was a rebellion, unsuccessful rebellion, and then the Romans came and destroyed Jerusalem effectively. And then suddenly when everything was shaken again, suddenly they were off to all around the world. And suddenly John was off to Turkey and Matthew to Ethiopia and Bartholomew to Armenia and Philip to Carthage, Andrew to Russia, Peter to Rome. I mean, they were just off. All of, Thomas made it to India. They were just off very suddenly and went to all nations. But there was something sort of instinctive that got them stuck initially until they were propelled all across the world. And what is it that gets us to go? Well, it's not um, a running away or a, or a failure to commit. Going is not running away. It's something, it means going after something. So a, a number of weeks ago, uh, about uh, six or seven weeks ago, we were, as a family, Tara and me and our four children were on the pier. And then one of our children dropped their water bottle off the side of the pier into the water. And they really liked this water bottle. And they really wanted it. And so I thought, well, I'm definitely not going to dive off the edge of the water. But I'll then I'll go down to the beach and see maybe it's drifted to shore. Uh, but it wasn't drifting to shore. It was drifting out to sea, sort of diagonally, um, heading south in a direction. Anyway, diagonally out to sea. It was getting further and further away. And I thought, this is not a good time for me to go in the water. Uh, first of all, this is early June. This is not the last week of August. So I do not get in the water in early June anymore. I didn't have my swimming trunks, and I'd recently just cracked a rib. So it was just quite, it was, it was quite painful. Anyway, but one of my children really loved that water bottle. So I thought, I'm just going to have to go and get it. And so in my clothes, I just swam out. I just started swimming out towards towards this water bottle and managed to grab hold of it and then bring it back to the shore. Um, I know, I know, I know. But you don't have to. I know, I know, I know. I'm a great parent. But the, but the thing was, the only thing that got me to do it was the thing I was going after. And there's a detail in a story where Peter walks on water in Matthew's gospel, which I'd never noticed before, which is it says that Peter got out of the boat when he sees Jesus walking on water and said that Peter started walking towards Jesus. He wasn't just trying to walk on water. He was trying to walk towards Jesus. And that's the reason why we go. It's because there is something or rather someone precious who is out there. And when he calls us to go, we go. and We know that we're approaching Jesus. And so we go. Sometimes it can start with a very little step. One of the most helpful things about this passage is the fact that it starts with them going to the mountain that Jesus had told them to go to. So their first step of going was just going to this mountain that everyone knew from Galilee that was very familiar and near to home. But they started obeying in the little things, going in the small ways, and that enabled them eventually to go in the big ways. So first of all, we need to be people who go. This is not a time as a church to hold back and play it safe. We're gonna be a church that goes. And secondly, we're going to be a church that expands and expands our vision. 
we are not going to allow the chaos around us, the difficulties we face, the changes we're going through to allow our vision or our faith to shrink. And Jesus says to the disciples, go and make disciples of all nations. I mean, this is, this is a huge vision for their lives. The danger is that when things go wrong, we, we shrink. Everything becomes smaller. So when, when, we were, when God created us, he created us in the image of God, which meant that we were supposed to have a particular relationship with God and with one another and with creation. And so we were supposed to feel this responsibility for the world around us. We were supposed to love the people around us and we were supposed to love God. But the essence of sin, Martin Luther defined, defined sin as a heart curved in on itself. So the essence of sin is that we start looking inwards and we begin to shrink. And so we start maybe with a vision for Brighton, but then it becomes about St. Peter's. Or we start off uh, with, instead of having a passion for the church, it becomes about our church. Instead of a desire for the nations, it becomes only an interest in our particular nation. Instead of the community in general, it becomes about our friends and our group. Instead of about other people, about God, it just life becomes about us and the self. And so the way that Jesus breaks this is he gives us a vision, which is just huge. Go and make disciples of all nations. I mean, the estimates of the global population at the time was um, anywhere between 170 million and 400 million people in the world. And there are only 11 of them. Actually, one of them is going to get martyred pretty quickly. So uh, even if you split it between the 11 of them, that's 15 and a half million people they've got to convert each. I mean, this is, this is huge and it's impossible. But I think that's the point. That is the kind of vision that God gives his people. It's a vision that's huge and in, in, impossible. But over time, you can start, it can start to shrink and you can start to hold on to what's small and manageable. And, but actually, we as a church will always go for what's big and impossible, the things that only God can do. Because when God gives us a calling, he gives us a calling that will require his miraculous power to intervene enable, in order for it to be fulfilled. And so we're going to expand. We're not going to shrink. Our vision is going to get bigger. And then the third thing is we're going to go for everything. We're going to grow in all ways. So I love it when it says that Jesus says to them, therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. That's quite big. Baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, maybe more manageable, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. You'd have thought with so many people, he would have said, teach them the basics and then move on. But he says, teach them to obey everything I have commanded you. This is quite difficult because this requires them to remember everything that Jesus has commanded them. I mean, I find it hard. If Tara gives me, say, would you mind going upstairs and getting these three things? I almost never manage to come down with more than one thing. But this is to teach them to, to obey everything. And this is how I think um, one of the temptations of the Christian life works. And this is the temptation to a kind of shallowness in our spiritual lives. 
When, um, imagine this is our life, this is our heart. And Jesus is wanting to come and live within us. So Revelation 3.20, Jesus says, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with them and they with me. So your life is like a, a house and Jesus is knocking at the door. And to become a Christian means to invite Jesus in. But what we discover is that actually, so Jesus is in our hearts, he's in our lives. But then what we discover is actually, the, the picture is a bit more complicated than that. Because what we discover is there are actually a few of these side rooms and um, there's a room out here and there's a little turret here and there's a corridor over here and there's a room over here and here and there's this room here. And in these places are things like our need for comfort um, and there's some bitterness here and there's our attitude to money here and there's um, fear and there's insecurity and there's... Um, Ambition is here. And that's all fine. And the temptation is to say, Jesus, come into my heart. Um, but that's far enough. Because what we discover is that Jesus, who says, I stand at the door and knock, continues to do the same once he enters our hearts. He stands at the door of this room, and 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 this room. And he's knocking on the door, just longing to come in to bring his healing and his light and his truth and his restoration and his transformation. But we can hold all these things. Actually, geez, that's, that's, we'll just keep things here. Now, what happens is that if we get shaken, as happens in life, these things that we've maybe been able to hide back in these back rooms start coming out into the front room because the house has been shaken. And when we do that, we have a number of options. One option is we try and just get them back in their rooms as quickly as possible, because we don't really like the fact that we feel all these things, we've noticed these things. Um, another option is we think, actually, because Jesus and bitterness can't coexist, a Jesus and a love of money cannot coexist, a Jesus and selfish ambition, they, they just can't coexist, they, they don't belong in the same place. We decide that in the end, we'd rather hold on to our bitterness than hold on to Jesus. And so Jesus, we allow Jesus to disappear. Or the other option is that we allow Jesus to touch and transform all these things. And there's that verse that I love from the Gospels, that all who touched him were healed. If we'd only let Jesus touch these things, he would heal and transform them. And then he begins to flow into these areas. So to give a personal example, um, a few weeks ago, I had a little run of getting a few things wrong and getting into trouble with different people um, at home and at work. And I just got a few things wrong. And I really don't like it, uh, the disapproval of other people. I really don't like I like people to like me. And so I had this really uncomfortable feeling of, of sort of dis disapproval and getting things wrong. And I thought, oh, what do I do about this, this feeling? I recognized this sense quite strongly. Oh Lord, if I was given the choice of universal approval from people, but the disapproval of God, or the approval of God, but the universal disapproval of everyone else, 
what would I choose? And I thought, oh no, this is not good. And it felt so uncomfortable. So I did what I've learned to do over as a number of decades of being a Christian, which is I went onto the BBC Sports website and found some highlights to watch. And that actually worked quite well. Um, until, it, until it stopped and I had to kind of move on. And then I thought, I know what I'll do is I'll talk to a few friends about what I'm feeling. And I'll explain some of the situations. And not all my friends. I'll find some friends who will tell me that actually I was in the right in every situation. And that actually that anyone else was, was wrong. And that will help me feel better. But that didn't really work either. And in the end, I thought, all I've got to do, I've just got to let this thing touch with Jesus who is already in my heart and just okay this is what's here I love the approval of other people more than I love you Lord I'm really sorry please transform this and heal this and deal with it as only you can do because you can try and import some other things to help and people people can help and therapy can help and a good night's sleep can help but only Jesus can heal only Jesus can transform. And what Jesus wants is everything. When you love someone, you want the whole of them. And Jesus just, he wants the whole of our lives. He's not satisfied with just this. He wants the whole lot. At the beginning of um, COVID, well, actually throughout COVID really, I had this sense, everything seemed to be falling apart. It was all quite traumatic. And I had a sense of, oh, Lord, what, how do I respond to this? And the thought that kept on coming back to me is, I think the response is just to try and just give everything to Jesus. I don't know quite what that means, but I think the response is give everything to Jesus. And this was the thing that just kept on coming back to me, just as everything's being shaken, just in response, give everything. Just give everything, just give everything. And then I would talk to a few people about it and they said, oh, do you know what that means for you? And I said, I have no idea what that means for me. I just have this sense of needing to give everything. And it was only after a year of feeling that and thinking that and processing that and trying to pray that, that I just got this tiniest thought late in June, 2021. Having dinner with Tara, I just had this tiniest thought. I think we should look at Brazil. And it just felt like the smallest, tiniest, insignificant little thought. But it just appeared in my mind. And then we talked and this thought grew and it grew and it grew. And suddenly I realized the way, one way to try and give everything. Because I think that's who we are as a church. We're a church that goes. We're a church with a, a, a vision for what's big and impossible. And we're a church that wants to give everything. We're not satisfied with a shallow spirituality, with a shallow faith. We want to give absolutely everything. One final thing and then we'll pray. And Jesus finishes his last words. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. This is so helpful. Because he doesn't say, and make sure you stick together. And just stick together as a group and then everything will be all right. Uh, he doesn't say, actually, uh, your vicar will be with you always to the very end of the age, or your favorite worship leader will be with you to the end of the age, or your team that's planting with you will always be with you to the very end of the age. He says, I will be with you. I've been thinking a bit about Lord of the Rings, 
when that made the fellowship of the ring gather and they have this extraordinary mission to destroy the ring of power in mortal. And they're incredibly effective as a group. But there reaches a point where they realize that the only way to fulfill their mission is to go in different directions. And some of them have to go into Rohan and some to Gondor and some um, have to go into Mordor directly. But that's the only way to fulfill their mission. And that's what happens in the life of the church. There are times where you realize you just have to go in, in different directions. But the reassurance is not that we'll always be together. The reassurance is that Jesus has said, and I will be with you always, wherever you go. Whether you're in Brighton or London or Oxford or Rio or Syria or Jordan or wherever else, Jesus promises, I will be with you. This is the, he doesn't promise that things will go well. He just promises that he'll be with us. This is the only promise actually we need. This is the only promise that he's willing to give us, that he'll be with us always, no matter what. Amen. Amen. Why don't we stand?